Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing? Good. Do you want to know why? Why? Because we are getting super close, closer than ever before, to our $150 goal on Patreon. That's true. With every new patron, we get a little bit closer. Yeah. We're also getting close to almost 150, like, pieces of bonus audio. Oh, that's right. The 140th Patreon bonus audio just went up, right? Yeah, this past Monday. So that's, like, ten weeks until we hit 150? Hmm. And $150 is our first Patreon goal, right? Huh. Do you think we can make it to 150 by 150? I mean, if anyone can, our amazing listeners can. Well, that's the challenge to you, Creatures of the Night. Head over to patreon.com slash podcast and sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. But you can also sign up at the $5 and $10 levels to get access to all of our amazing bonus content. We are putting the challenge out to you to get us to $150 a month on Patreon within the next 10 weeks. Yeah. By the time we hit our 150th week on Patreon. Uh, Every week on a Monday, new bonus audio goes up. um, And we've also had short stories, movie reviews, Dungeons & Dragons adventures, music, audiobooks. Lots and lots of stuff to treat your ears to... Just by going to patreon.com slash podcast and helping us get to $150 a month by the 150th piece of bonus audio. When we hit that $150 goal on Patreon, we will start doing a bonus fifth episode every month of Scream Scene that will cover horror-adjacent movies. Stuff like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Clue. The Addams Family. The 1999 The Mummy. Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. All of those... That, that's debatable whether that's horror or not. No, it's... I don't think it's horror. It's definitely horror adjacent. Okay. Most of Tim Burton's movies are <laughs> horror adjacent. Um, Beetlejuice? Would you consider Beetlejuice? Horror, it's about a bunch of ghosts haunting a house. Yes, it's horror adjacent. Would it be horror? horror? No, no. It's a fucking comedy. <laughs> they, they get haunted by singing Caribbean folk tunes. Like, no... I've never seen Beetlejuice. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Oh, we might have to correct that. Audience, if you want to correct that and help Sarah see Beetlejuice, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we can start doing episodes covering all the movies that you ask us to cover and we say no. <laughs> um, all of that was unscripted and just a fun selling point at the top of the show. How are you doing, Ben? I, I never asked you. No, no. You went right into advertisement mode when I asked you how you were doing. I am in marketing. That's true. I'm doing just fine. We are getting closer to Christmas. Christmas decorations are up. That's right. We are... Castle um, Scream Scene has tweeted out its cobwebs for that spray-on snow that you put on windows. <laughs> but not really. Uh, we do have wonderful tinsel and um, all of these decorations up. Uh, we are wrapping presents. We're writing Christmas cards. It's all very exciting. I think we're also a little excited for today's episode. Yes. I think for its historical significance more than the movie itself. Although maybe the movie will surprise us. I don't think so. So this week's movie is... Monster from the Ocean Floor from 1954, and it is our first encounter with the legendary Roger Corman. Now, do you think this monster is going to be an octopus? Like, what do you think? I mean, I know exactly what this monster is going to be, so I've not seen the movie, but... um, You've read the spoilers? In the course of my research... Okay. Roger Corman is an independent filmmaker known for his long career in the realm of genre pictures. This is a guy who did B-horror movies, B-sci-fi movies, 
monster movies, beach party movies, uh, street racing movies, uh, anything that you could get out like cheap and fast and make a quick buck on, Roger Corman made those movies. He has directed 55 films in his career and has produced nearly 400. Whoa. And he's independent, so is he funding this himself? It depends for each different movie. Sure, that's every, fair. Every movie is, is its own thing. Um, aside from his own work, he is also highly respected in Hollywood due to his mentorship of many young filmmakers and actors at the start of their careers. You know, he would give chances to young people who had not done anything yet because they could be got cheap. Uh, and so a lot of people graduated from what's jokingly called the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. This includes directors like Francis Ford Coppola and James Cameron, and actors like Jack Nicholson. So Roger Corman was born April 5th, 1926, in Detroit, Michigan. His family moved to California, and Corman attended Beverly Hills High School and later Stanford University to become an industrial engineer like his father. But Corman was unhappy at Stanford and began to realize that he didn't want to be an engineer. However, he finished his degree with a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering in 1947 after a two-year break to serve in the U.S. Navy from 1944 to 1946. In 1948, Corman went to work for U.S. Electrical Motors in Los Angeles, but quit after only four days, telling his boss, I've made a terrible mistake. I mean, good on him for recognizing that, no, this, I'm good. Like, only four days in versus, like, 40 years. Sure. Now, his younger brother, uh, Gene Corman, was an agent working in Hollywood. Uh, he would actually eventually rise to the position of vice president of MCA, which was the largest agency at the time. Um, so Gene got his brother a job in the mailroom at 20th Century Fox. Corman worked his way up from there to a job as a reader, which is a person who reads the scripts that come into a studio and then advises that studio as to their commercial and critical viability. Readers can have a great amount of influence over what films get made and also what changes get made to the original script. Corman made so many suggestions that were used and acted upon for the Gregory Peck western The Gunfighter in 1950 that he thought he should be credited. Fox disagreed. Yeah. So Corman quit. Under the provisions of the GI Bill, he studied English literature at Oxford University and returned to L.A. after graduating to try to break into the film industry again. While working as an assistant to a literary agent, he wrote a film noir script called House on the Sea. Allied artists bought the script for $2,000 and produced the film under the title Highway Dragnet to cash in on the popular TV series Dragnet. Sure. Corman worked on the film as an associate producer for free. Uh, he was paid an experience. Did it basically just to be there and be on set and kind of see how it was done. Uh, sometimes that works for people, sometimes it doesn't. I do not recommend that. I don't think Allied Artists was like, hey, we're going to pay you an experience. I think he was like, hey, I'll do this job for you for free if it means I get to be on set. Sure, okay. Power dynamics are important. After that, Corman decided it was time to produce his own movie. He took the $2,000 he got for Highway Dragnet and another $1,500 of his own money to form a base to begin asking for more cash from private investors in the form of $500,000 shares. Corman had read a newspaper article about a one-man submarine uh, created by a company called Aerojet, that was made for, like, Navy demolitions. Corman called them up and asked if he could use the sub in a movie, and he got Aerojet to agree to let him use it for free because Aerojet wanted to sell the sub commercially for, like, recreational use, and Corman convinced them that it would be good for publicity. Yeah, it would be. This is product placement. Absolutely. 
Um, I think what Aerojet probably didn't realize when they made this agreement is that, you know, they were talking to someone who had never made a movie before, didn't have a distribution deal, had, like, only a couple thousand dollars so far to make the movie, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Corman then hired writer Bill Danch to write a cheap monster movie revolving around the availability of the submarine. Danch was an inexperienced TV writer at the time with, like, two to three credits to his name, Uh, but he would later find success as a writer of children's television cartoons, including 20 episodes of the original 1960s Spider-Man cartoon. Oh. To direct, Corman tapped Wyatt Ordung, the writer of the utterly inane indie sci-fi film Robot Monster from the previous year. (laughs) Corman convinced Ordung to divert $4,000 of his pay as a director, into an investment into the film's budget in exchange for the experience of his first directing job. Uh. I mean, he didn't not pay Ordung. He just convinced him to put part of his pay into funding the movie. Ultimately, I think Ordung would only end up directing, like, one or two movies after this. Does he at least get a producer credit because he helped fund the movie? No, because that's not entirely what being a producer is. Um, otherwise, not entirely, but related. Sure. Otherwise, all of these investors that he's getting $500 shares from would get producer credits. That's not quite how that works. That's how Kickstarter works. Yeah, this isn't Kickstarter. <laughs> this is Roger Corman. <laughs> Another $5,000 came from Consolidated Labs, a film development lab, on a basically a loan against paying the lab back when the film made a profit. That's how all of these were working, right? Like, Ordung's putting in four grand under the assumption that he'll get that back when the film makes money. Yeah. Ultimately, $15,000 was raised in total for the film's budget, which was shot under the title, It Stocked the Ocean Floor. That's a much better title. Cinematography was by Floyd Crosby, the Oscar-winning cinematographer of Taboo, A Story of the South Seas, the final film of F.W. Murnau, the My Friend Benito segment of It's All True, the unfinished documentary by Orson Welles, and the 1952 western High Noon, also the father of musician David Crosby. His career was on a major downslope at this point. He was shooting movies like The Snow Creature, so Corman was able to get him on the cheap. Yeah. Yeah. The movie was shot in a total of eight days. Oof. The last two being for the underwater photography. I mean, the title of this movie implies a significant amount of time underwater, So either that is completely misleading, which I highly doubt is the case for a B-movie, Ben. Mm -hmm. And instead, this speaks to a great efficient use of time and uh, organization to get all of that underwater footage done in only two days. Would you believe it's both? Oh my god. (laughs) Uh, Corman ran sets with a ultimately like an engineer's mind like everything was like a part of the machine that had to work in perfect efficiency with all the other parts of the machine now efficiency is good on a film set but for corman it was also necessary when you're going to shoot a feature film in a week you need to be efficient yeah especially if you're doing it on fifteen thousand (laughs) dollars yes that that, that's the kicker right Mm -hmm. there i will at this time remind the audience of the old truism about the film industry, which is that the three things you want to do when making a film are to be uh, fast, cheap, and good. You can only pick two. Not looking good for Corman. He's (laughs) got fast and cheap. Mm Mm-hmm. The film's original monster got laughs at a test screening Due to its resemblance to a contraceptive diaphragm? (laughs) Oh no, oh no, Ben, oh no. Corman panicked and reshot all of the shots the monster appears in with a new prop, uh, which unfortunately did not match 
the dialogue of the characters in the movie describing what the monster looks like. But, you know, fuck it. So the the new design is a a one-eyed cephalopod. So, ergo the octopus comment you made from earlier. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guessed right. Yeah. It was originally supposed to be like a giant mutant amoeba. Yeah, I can see how that would be mistaken for a diaphragm. Yeah. Uh, So it's still described like that. And it still acts and does things like an amoeba, but when we see it, it's a one-eyed octopus. Okay. Gene Corman used his contacts in Hollywood to try selling the movie to a distributor, and ultimately made a deal with Robert Lippert of B-movie distributor Lippert Pictures for a $110,000 advance. We've seen some movies from Lippert Pictures in the past. Um, They were a unit of producer Robert Lippert's uh, at Columbia Pictures called Screen Gems that spun off into being its own thing as an independent company. And they did movies like Scared to Death back in 1947. Right, right, um, And more recently, stuff like Rocket Ship XM and a lot of the cheap sci-fi B-movies of the 1950s. When Lippert discovered that Roger Corman had spent considerably less than $100,000 to make the film, he renegotiated that deal. But he still paid Corman $60,000 advance on the movie, which Corman then used to fund his next picture, 1954's The Fast and the Furious. Excuse me? The Fast and the Furious? Are you saying... That the Fast and the Furious movies uh-huh. and franchise that uh-huh. is still ongoing today uh-huh. started back in the 50s? Yeah. The first Fast and the Furious movie with Vin Diesel from 2001, I believe. Universal Pictures bought the rights to remake the Fast and the Furious from Corman in exchange for giving Corman a whole bunch of stock footage from the Universal vaults that Corman could use in his movies. That is unbelievable. <laughs> I cannot believe this. <laughs> well, I am telling you that it is true. <laughs> Corman later said that he made this movie with the confidence of a 28-year-old who didn't know how anything really worked, and that he did things that he would never attempt later in life. Basically saying that, like, you know, at that age you do things you wouldn't do when you're older and smarter and know how things work. Sure. Um, that he had, like, you know, a lot of chutzpah, basically, to, uh, to put it uncharitably, like, scam people. Into getting this movie made? Yeah. Like, I'm sitting here in 2020 as a 30-year-old and kind of, like, side-eyeing a lot of his antics here. The thing about Corman, though, is (laughs) there are always two ways to look at his antics. Because, like, on the one, you can see it as, like, oh, that's a little questionable, buddy. But on the other, you can remember that he's 28 years old. He's doing this entirely on his own. He has no experience and no pull in the industry at all and he's like you know gumptioning up the production of a movie on next to nothing and so there's certainly like i think a way that you can look at all of this and find like a lot to admire about this guy who you know is putting a movie together on you know next to no money uh through just kind of like chutzpah yeah and I think the thing that makes Roger Corman different from... Ed Wood? No, from, like, someone who you might look down on more for these kind of shenanigans is that when Lippert Pictures released the film, which was retitled Monster from the Ocean Floor because Robert Lippert thought the original title was too cerebral, <laughs> uh, they released the film on May 21st, 1954, and it made $185,000 domestic at the box office. A huge success, given its $15,000 price tag. So all of that, like, I'm going to underpay you, and, you know, I'm going to take some money from you here and there, and don't worry, I'll pay you back when the movie makes money. Paid off. Paid off. Because the movie was a, a hit. I... I don't think that there's room for the discussion here, but we should really discuss, like, the similarities between how you're describing Corman Mm -hmm. and how we talked about Ed Wood, Mm -hmm. because they both are, like, got nothing to their name, Mm -hmm. starting out at the very, very bottom. They have, as you said, the gumption, Mm -hmm. the chutzpah. Mm -hmm. One makes it, one doesn't. 
Yeah. Edward's like the there but for the grace of God go I version of Roger Corman. <laughs> and like, yeah, the, the difference between them is that Corman's movies made money. I guess he also has like the brother, the agent brother that yeah. helped like squeak open the door. For sure. But, yeah. But yeah, like what Corman figured out was that you could be very, very successful making B movies. You know, I mean... $185,000 box office isn't much. But when your movie costs 15000 Exactly. If you can make it for real cheap and still have it be good, you'll make money. And by good, Corman didn't mean Oscar-worthy. Oscar yeah, he meant people will go Profitable. to see this in drive throughs Like, people will go to see this and watch it, and he figured out, you know, that means that you got to give the people what they want to see. So he's found the secret formula to get all three things of cheap, fast, mm -hmm. and good. Yes. But it's by shooting for a certain level of good and no further. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to see, I think, watching this movie that it's not really anything special. But absolutely, like, the kind of shenanigans that he pulls come off as like, oh, wow, what a, uh, you know, what an entrepreneur, kind of, like, what a self-made man, uh, because his movies were successful and made money, and he was able to parlay that success into making more movies where he hired the same people again and again, and, like, you know, therefore was, like, a, a reliable employer for people and all this kind of stuff, whereas if the movies were failures, it'd be like, oh, wow, you scammed a bunch of people out of money and then left them with nothing. Right? So it's it's a hundred percent that thing where like you you forgive behaviors for a successful person that you wouldn't forgive for an unsuccessful person because it paid off, because the, the gambit pays off. Roger Corman is Don Draper. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> Those two years where he was off in World War Two, he actually stole someone's identity. Right. Which is why when he came back, he couldn't be an engineer anymore, <laughs> despite his degree. <laughs> so yeah, this is the film that brought Roger Corman into the world of B-movies. I mean, I guess you could say it's Highway Dragnet, because he took his money from writing that to make this. But then he took his money selling this to a distributor to make Fast and the Furious, which he made over at American Releasing Corporation as their first movie. And we talked about American Releasing Corporation in our episode on Bride of the Monster as being a company that was founded out of the success of Bride of the Monster. And that company would change its name to American International Pictures and the relationship between Corman and AIP would be synonymous, you know, for the next 20 years. Um, and we'll certainly have a lot of opportunities to talk about that history in the future. Cool. Well, how are we watching this movie? Well, it may surprise you to learn that Monster from the Ocean Floor is in the public domain. It does surprise me, because I figured someone with such an entrepreneurial mind wouldn't let his stuff go into the public domain. Ah, but he sold the rights to this movie to Lippert Pictures for 60 grand. Right, And fair. Lippert Pictures went out of business eventually. <laughs> um, it is on DVD on a double feature with another movie called Serpent Island. Um... <laughs> Okay. But uh, otherwise, uh, you should be able to find it online to watch. Uh, there is a version on YouTube, which has been uploaded as the back half of a double feature to a movie called Flight to Mars, which came out in 1951, so it's not like a chronologically accurate double feature, but the uploader did put in like trailers and like in-between movie commercials for like oh, that's neat popcorn and stuff yeah it's kind of neat and you can also find it like on its own cool well creatures of the night hopefully you can find a copy and watch along you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss monster from the ocean floor from 1954 directed by wyatt ordung see you on the other side everybody Thank you. 
Welcome back everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Monster from the Ocean Floor from 1954, directed by Wyatt Ordung. Ben, what did you think? It's fine. I, I have, as someone who has made very low budget genre movies before, like this, I, I have a lot of slack I might be giving this movie. Sure. Um, for what it is, it's fine. I think this movie's biggest flaw might be that it is so obviously what it is. See, I don't know if that's a flaw. Okay. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Because you get what you see on the side of the can. Sure. You know, the- kind of. But okay. it is what you pay for. Yes, it certainly... Hmm. We can talk about this more. Let's get the story plot synopsis part out of the way so we can get into more detail. It probably shouldn't take us that long. Not a lot happens in this movie. No. Uh, as with any low-budget movie, there is some stuff that can basically be called padding for time. Yeah. And we'll be kind of skimming over that yeah. and just focusing on what's important to the plot. Yeah, for which sure. Which is... That Julie Blair is on vacation in Mexico. She happens to be like a marketing artist. She's a commercial artist. Commercial artist, that's the word. She has a meet-cute with marine biologist Steve Dunning, who is uh, the person who has the submarine. Mm -hmm. Tales and rumors of a devil-in-the-cove kind of monster are sparked anew with the recent disappearance of a diver. Yeah, and it's not like... He oh, went he's swimming and he left. It's, you know, they... They found the suit. It's one of those old-timey suits with, like, the big, like, globe thing over the head. And uh, he was, like, sucked out through, like, the face opening. Yeah, like, the suit is still sealed. They find the suit at the bottom of the ocean with no guy in it. Now, Steve is like, well, that's a mystery. Moving on to my science. <laughs> However, Julie wants to investigate. She's just a commercial artist... But she wants to try to help these people. Yeah, she's doing it because she feels it's the right thing to do. Um, this diver's gun missing is only the latest she finds out in like a series of casualties? Of disappearances. Yes. So she finds out from different people in the village that, you know, these disappearances and like weird devil sightings started in 1946. Before that, there was no issue with anything. Right. There's a local man who claims to have seen some kind of creature. He describes it as, like, some kind of formless, shapeless being, um, but it had a giant red glowing eye um, that can also come onto land. Uh, you know you know how, like, sea turtles make, like, distinctive marks on the beach or whatever? It's like that, only, like, the size of, like, a house. Like, these tracks are, like, three wagons wide. Mm-hmm. Some other people have gone missing um, through the past. More recently, besides this diver, a dog has gone missing. And in each case, it's like, you know, the dog was chained up and had his collar on. And the dog's missing, but the collar is still there. The chain is still there. Like, it's like these things just kind of up and disappear. Um, At one point, we see a cow go missing in a sort of, like... Jurassic Park goat situation. Yeah. Where, like, the, the cow just wanders to the beach. It's, it's unclear as why there's a cow on the beach at night during the full moon, but there is. Yeah, and then when Julie... So she sees the cow, sees something in the water, faints, wakes up, just finds the cow's, like, harness. During this time, Steve has gotten some funding as a marine biologist to kind of move his research team further along the coast. So he leaves the cove... And they have, like, a loving goodbye, even though they've only met for, like, a day or two. Um, whatever. Meanwhile, and this is right when, like, the movie was just like, yeah, fuck it (laughs) for me. This local woman named Tula, who happened to be the owner of the dog who went missing, goes to Pablo. Who, by the way, Pablo is played by the director of the movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um... And she goes, uh, you and I know the history of our people. Do you follow the new god or Quetzalcoatl? A.K.A. we're Aztecs 
or something. Something. And you know that with our legends, that the only way to make this evil in the cove go away is to sacrifice the most fairest one of us all, which is Julie, mm-hmm. because she's white. And blonde. And Pablo's like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and Tila's like, I don't care. Fucking kill the bitch. <laughs> it ate my dog. Yeah. Apparently, you know. That was the last straw. Exactly. That kid's dad, Joe's diver. Um, Other people. It doesn't matter. It killed my dog. Yeah. She could write, like, a country song. <laughs> Pablo is very reluctant about this. He does give it a couple, like, good college tries of, like, luring sharks to where Julie's diving or leaking the air out of her oxygen tank. But these are easily foiled. Lucky for Julie, Pablo is terrible at murder. Meanwhile, Julie catches a sample of this creature um, off of her anchor. She was pulling it up and it caught on something and... It has, like, this weird ooze, so she sent that off to Steve to get his opinion as a marine biologist, and also as proof that, hey, this thing exists. Stop calling me crazy. Yeah, Steve has been very vocal about not believing Julie this entire time, but because this is a movie from the 1950s, uh, a man can be like, Julie, you're certifiable. This obsession of yours is completely ridiculous. Like, how do you get such stupid ideas in your pretty little head and yet still be charming and lovable enough for Julie to fall in love with him? Yeah, it's great. Um, Love it. It is worth saying that this encounter where Julie finally finds evidence of the monster happens completely off screen. We just cut to Steve getting the sample. Now, Steve, to his credit, does examine the substance along with his colleague, and they're like, oh, it's some kind of, like, weird amoeba-like substance that eats meat, like this ham from this ham sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Steve is like, it just, like, enveloped the meat. I I think this is something that could, like, envelop a man. And his colleague is like, or woman. And Steve gives him a look like, oh, shit, let's go back to the cove. (laughs) Steve is like the dumbest microbiologist. Anyways, so they are hightailing at high speeds on the open water back to the cove. Meanwhile, Pablo and Julie have rowed out to the cove, and Pablo pulls out a knife to try to sacrifice murder her, and he's like, nah, I just can't do it. And Julie's like, oh, what, what can't you do? He's like, I... I've been trying to murder you, but I just, I just can't do it. And she's like, that's okay. I forgive you. Can you help me with my oxygen tank? So that's resolved. She's just like, he's like, I need to kill you to sacrifice you to the monsters. The monster will go away. And she's like, that's ridiculous. Let's forget all about it. (laughs) So she goes into the water and as she is swimming about, she comes across the monster that lives on the ocean floor. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, It is a giant octopus with one giant red eye. Clearly a puppet. Um, It looks exactly like Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons. Yeah, except without the mouth with, like, teeth and whatever. Yeah. Um, It does have some cool lighting effects. It has light behind the eye and then light on the tips of its legs. Or, like... Tentacles? Tentacles. Now, Julie has a bad habit of fainting at the slightest provocation. She's a good, strong female character, but she's also still a woman in a movie from the 1950s. So she faints underwater? Or her oxygen tank is low because she's been underwater for too long. It's unclear. In any case, around this time is when Steve's boat finally arrives to the cove, and Pablo's like, she's been down there too long. Quick, get in your sub and save her. Steve does this. And he sees the creature, the monster, and he goes, ramming speed, Captain, and rams his submarine right into the creature's eye, hops out in, like, scuba gear, and finds Julie, brings her up to the surface. The day is saved. It's implied that the monster is dead, and Julie and Steve are going to get married. 
Yeah, he does apologize to her at the end of the movie yes. for being for not believing her. And she's like, forget about it. Yeah. You know she's not going to forget about it. <laughs> <sighs> so, um, this movie has some nice underwater photography. Yes, which was surprising. It's, it's that low-budget parabola where if you have a really high budget, you can go out on location and, you know, really do everything for real. And if you have a medium budget, you know, you're going to do it all in a tank on a set with stunt people using, like, mats and, and rear projection and shit. And if you have a low budget, you're going to do everything on location for real. <laughs> Because you, you can't, can't afford, afford to do it. Hey. Yeah, exactly. So this whole movie shot on location. They're actually underwater. It's actually um, Anne Kimball who plays Julie, who's doing the underwater stuff. You can see her face clearly. Um, she she does has some... a good, like, I'm screaming, but underwater look. Yeah, she does some really good physical acting underwater, which really helps the movie a lot. Um, and, you know... The various times that Pablo tries to sacrifice her, you know, will involve, like, putting blood into the sea so that sharks will come get her. And, like, they're real sharks, and they're clearly, really right there in the frame with her. Um, I will say, these looked like um, the average reef shark. Yeah. So, yeah, can bite you and cause some damage, but it's not like a great white kind of damage, and are not actually going to bother you that much, unless you have, like fish guts. Yeah, and they they establish earlier that Steve's told her like what to do if she sees a shark and it just so happens that what Steve tells her to do is to like stay totally still and do nothing. So that... she whips out a knife and starts stabbing it. <laughs> but she does like stay in one place, right? So they don't have to like choreograph like an elaborate thing with the shark. They can just have her be there and have the shark just sort of swim by the camera. And when she's stabbing it like clearly her knife is going nowhere near it, IRL. You know what I mean? It, it did look like she was actually stabbing the shark, but that her knife wasn't real. It was maybe hard plastic or something. Yeah. To kind of, like, keep it away, um, but not actually draw blood, because a shark's own blood can cause a feeding frenzy. Oh, for sure. I think Anne Kimball overall is probably the best actor in this movie. Yeah. Um, she does a really great job of giving Julie a lot of, like, personality and warmth and charm whereas like the rest of the characters and cast in this movie range from like flat to meh yeah i do wish more had been done in terms of the script yeah to kind of explain like why this commercial artist would want to stick around she says she's on vacation but it feels like she's been here for like a really long time maybe in the 50s they just had like longer vacations than we do these days even if she had just been an artist for like i don't know national geographic sure like something that would like why she's there exactly or like establish her interest in like this creature and wanting to like go diving and all these things on the other hand i kind of liked that she was a protagonist who's getting involved solely because it's the right thing to do like Steve's all like, why would you do any of this crazy stuff? And she's like, because people are dying and I want to help them. And he's like, well, fine, but don't take any risks. Yeah. And I kind of liked that she wasn't like a spunky reporter out for a story or something. She was just like interested in helping. Speaking of the script, though, um, apparently it was written in one night. <laughs> it is pretty boilerplate. Yes. Um, I think... One of the weaknesses of this movie is that it's clearly an exercise in how do we fill up the running time because we can't really afford a monster. Like, when we finally see the monster, it's clear why we haven't been seeing the monster up to this point, you know? Um, we get sneak peeks here and there of it, like, rising out of the ocean, just done through matting work. Yeah. But never, like, a real clear view until the climax. Yeah, we never see our characters and the monster in the same shot. It, honestly, the little puppet is not much better, probably, than the diaphragm that got laughed at. Um, it's really clearly, like, a foot tall and just, like, a little puppet on, like, a little stage that probably is, like, a marionette or something um, with a little toy submarine that rams it in the eye for, like, 
the finale climax of this movie. It feels like something out of, like, a Melies short. It really does. Yeah, it's just, like, behind a sheet of frosted glass or something to try and make it look underwater, which actually doesn't work because the actual underwater photography is, like, really clear and well shot. Yeah, what they should have done is put an aquarium in front of the camera and then shot the puppet behind the aquarium. Sure. Just something to, like, be like, oh, look, it's still underwater somehow. Yeah, it, again, like, I have a lot of sympathy for this movie because I've certainly done shit like this in my own time. But this is an example of actually cheap, bad special effects. I think a lot of people will watch a movie from the 50s, you know, creature from the black lagoon or i think it came from outer space is a great example yeah or or even like godzilla and they'll be like oh the special effects are so cheap and fake and it's like no no no. you have to understand like for the time this is very very good this is what cheap crappy special effects look like absolutely and so because they can't show the monster really because they don't really have a monster a lot of the 64 minute runtime is made up of, like, characters having the same conversations just in different locales or with different sets of characters having the same conversations. Um, Julie getting into danger with, like, Pablo trying to kill her. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah. I think the entire sacrifice subplot is just there to create jeopardy scenes for Julie throughout the movie to keep the energy up without having to involve the monster. Yes, I think that's exactly why it's there. Um, also, because the ocean is the motherfucking ocean, mm -hmm. you can have that's like sharks, right. which they tease early on, yeah. that they could be around even without Pablo cutting his hand yeah, in the water. They in. do at least set up the sharks, that's for sure. Versus, like, if you think of the snow creature, like, mm. what else is up there in the mountains? Like, the snow? Yeah, the wind? It's avalanche. Like, there's going to be an avalanche. Like, yeah, like, there's, there's not really anything else to put the characters into peril. Yeah. That being said, the entire sacrifice subplot doesn't even make sense. Um, it's It does on, like, the barest of surface-level understanding of, like, what the Aztecs Well, and it's, do. Not, it's not even that. It's the fact that, like... So, you pointed out that the movie's kind of got some inconsistencies in the script, and that's certainly true. You know, why is Julie here? You know, but also the fact that Julie is both, like, a brave, headstrong, like, I'm gonna go find out what's up kind of female protagonist, but she does scream and faint at the slightest thing. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's going diving and seeing an octopus versus seeing a cow on the beach at midnight, <laughs> you know, like, just anything out of the ordinary, she's gonna scream and run away and faint. Um, and then the, the sacrifice subplot is bizarre because apparently this monster... Like, people have only been going missing, people have only been telling tales of the devil in the cove since 1946. The implication that Steve and Julie kind of come to is that, like, the underwater bikini tests, somehow the radiation got all the way over here to Mexico and mutated, like, a single-cell amoeba into a giant cow man-eating amoeba. Um, and you have to remember, of course, the original monster was going to look more like an amoeba than what we got. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that they are specifically calling out the bikini tests. For sure. This is 1954. I believe Godzilla, Gojira, would have already come out in Japan, but would not come out in the U.S. until 1956. 1956. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that this is predating Godzilla in at least the U.S. But on the other hand... The sacrifice subplot is like, ah, yes, the monster. We must sacrifice a maiden to it. And like, okay. It's like they just read, like, headlines in the news and then was like, oh, yeah, let's use that as, like, a thing in our movie. Well, it's also like, okay, so is the monster something that's the result of radiation since the end of the war? Or is the monster, like, a long-standing folk thing that's always been in the ocean? Because the way that people talk about it is like, Ah, yes, the legends of the devil in the cove. And it's like, wait, like, you mean the legends of the last, like, eight years? Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess it is only eight years. <laughs> uh, and then, like, the other thing is that the reason you sacrifice a thing to a monster to get it to go away is, like, 
the idea is the monster is going to eat the sacrifice and that'll satisfy it and it'll stop eating your dogs or your cows or whatever. But instead... Just like murdering her in the ocean isn't going to solve it. Yeah, yeah. Like all the things that Pablo's trying to do is just like to get her killed incidentally in the ocean and somehow that's going to solve the problem. Like the entire sacrifice subplot doesn't make any sense. It's just being tacked on to give the movie those action scenes to pad out the running time. I think... The saving grace of the movie is that it is only 64 minutes long, so it ultimately doesn't quite wear out its welcome. Yeah. It gets close, I think. A little bit, but it kind of keeps you going. It keeps throwing, like, not completely unrelated things, but does keep throwing some random things at the screen. Um, Yeah, there are some tangents here. Steve pulls out a guitar and starts serenading Julie at one point. It's like, okay. They do specify in dialogue, like, oh, I've only known you for, like, a few hours, but yet I feel like I'm falling in love. Um, I think, you know, not to be too base about it, but I'm pretty sure the filmmakers knew exactly what they were doing. A large part of this movie is Anne Kimball in some very fetching black swimsuits swimming around underwater and she looks damn cute and she's what we're looking at most of this movie it's kind of enough to keep you going through all of the long (laughs) underwater photography sequences roger corman knew what the people wanted ben yeah and they wanted a chick in a swimsuit yeah absolutely um like i think julie's a great character she's independent she's committed she's also very respectful of the locals whose superstitions she's trying to learn like i think it makes sense that pablo ultimately can't bring himself to kill her she's just too likable but ultimately this movie has like three types of scenes that make up the middle of the movie before we get to the climax and that's either julie talking to a mexican character about what they know about the devil in the cove Steve talking to someone, Julie or someone else, about how he doesn't believe in the monster and Julie's nuts. Or Pablo unsuccessfully trying to kill Julie like he's some kind of Mexican wily coyote. Yeah. Like yeah. his he might as well be pulling out like acme boxes and like <laughs> But as you said, it doesn't wear out its welcome. It's a it's a fun little movie. Yeah, I think the the reason to see the movie is uh, to see kind of the shoestring budget birth of Roger Corman's shoestring budget empire. Uh, Roger Corman even has a little cameo as Tommy, the deckhand, I think who it's... has no lines and just is kind of like here and there through shots. I do think it's funny that the way Tommy's introduced in the movie is when... Steve first takes Julie to his boat, and she meets his colleague, Dr. Baldwin. And then Tommy walks by, and Baldwin introduces him as, Oh, that's Tommy, our one-man crew? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Speaking of Steve, uh, Steve is hard to sit through. He is practically a parody of the, like, kind of cardboard, smug, patronizing, overprotective scientist characters that, like we get in these kind of movies. But because he's not the main character, Julie is, Mm -hmm. it's easier to sit through because there's not a lot of him comparatively. Sure. He's played utterly flat by Stuart Wade, um, who the good qualities of Stuart Wade are that he is mildly good looking and he can carry a tune. Um, (laughs) That's about it. Uh, He's just such an overbearing asshole by like 2020 standards But because he's exactly like almost every other male protagonist we've been seeing lately, he's clearly, at the time, meant to be likable, I guess. Even if the audience knows that he's wrong the entire movie. Yeah. It feels like a, uh, I'm a man of science, I believe in logic, these are just superstitions, masculine reason. Yeah, it it would be work better and again this might just come down to the script being very subpar but it would work better if a people weren't going missing and dying so that when julie's like right but like people are going missing and dying i want to help them and he's like well all right if you have to like he just seems like a bit of an asshole for that and then also the fact that like steve's the one who finds the empty diving suit at the start of the movie right and like the thing about scientists is like Yes, they're not superstitious, and yes, they're not going to be like, oh yeah, clearly it was, you know... Aliens. The ghost of St. Martin, or whatever. <laughs> like, but scientists are curious. 
That's a natural aspect of being a scientist. So when you find a sealed diving suit with a broken faceplate and no man inside, you don't go, well, that's certainly fucked up, and toss it back into the ocean and move on with your life. You think he'd be like, wow, what did this? Let's find out. And even if, you know, Julie's like, oh, it's definitely a monster, he could be like, well, maybe not. Maybe it's something else, but we definitely got to get to the bottom of it, right? Rather than just being like, oh, Julie, you're cute, but you sure are dumb. (laughs) Like, yeah. Yeah. The worst thing about this movie, though maybe this was just the copy that we were watching, uh, is that the sound is awful. Yeah, the mix is very tinny, and the the music and sound effects overwhelm the dialogue. There are, like, several scenes where they clearly, like, ADR'd people's voice in because, like, they're on a boat and stuff. You know, there's a lot of ambient sounds. And that was almost like the worst culprit of when it was just so difficult to hear what they were saying, ironically. Yeah, the music and sound effects are clearly all library sound effects and music. So they're just being thrown in there. And then, yeah, most of the dialogue, I think, is looped. And ultimately, you know, I think a big part of that is that this movie is all shot on location. And it just so happens that that location is either the beach... Or in the sea. Two places where you're going to have a lot of noise that's going to interfere with on-set recording. But, like, everyone sounds like they're talking over the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, yeah, like, it's super windy in many of the scenes. Because, you know, that's how it is on the shore. But I I wonder if it is just the, the fact, like, not even necessarily our copy... But just the fact, like, this is in the public domain. No one's giving a shit about, like polishing this up yeah for sure although i also wouldn't be surprised if it sounded around this bad when it first came out because i bring up the sound issues partially because it is somehow comforting to know that the hallmark of everyone's first cheap self-produced movie is bad sound (laughs) um you're finding a lot of like Uh, camaraderie with Roger Corman right now. Right, yeah. I mean, if you look at people's amateur movies, you know, when people try to make a movie and, you know, it's their first thing that they've ever done and they throw it into a film festival or they throw it onto YouTube or whatever, the hallmark of the bad indie movie is shitty sound because they're, you know usually using, like, the built-in camera mic or something, so people's voices are all weird and echoey and all these kinds of things. And, I mean, pro tip, if you want your amateur project to seem pro, invest in sound. Get a boom mic, get a recorder, get a sound guy, get a mixer. Like, that's the key to making your movie seem professional. And it was just, it was just somehow, like, really comforting for me to see that that's been, (laughs) like... That, that people don't think of sound, and that's been true since the beginning of cheap indie movies. So let's move on to ranking. Well, I think yes. Um, I do think we might want to talk a little bit about genre here, because I think the movie's more... Like, it's definitely a monster movie, but it's more of like a mystery movie with Julie trying to, like, figure out the clues and stuff. Um, you know, like, she's interviewing the locals and and trying to figure out what this monster is. And part of that's because they don't have enough monster to really have a lot of monster in the movie. There are also parts of the movie like uh, Steve coming to Julie's rescue that's intercut with her underwater that feels like the ending of like a western or something when like the cavalry <laughs> is coming to the rescue but oh that's no that's just because of the library tracks they were using no as kidding. like the submarine speeds by you just expect galloping yeah yeah exactly so what did you feel about this movie and calling it a horror movie you do bring up a good point i think because of the way that it's using certain tropes of like it only comes out on the full moon <laughs> And, like, having it peek through the water and Julie screaming and fainting at the slightest provocation. I feel like they are trying to, like, engage with some horror tropes um, because of, like, oh, that's going to titillate people. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I think that, like, superstitious locals. Mm, yeah, that's that's a key, key trope for sure. Yeah. 
this movie's definitely influenced by Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, which also came out this year. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like a creature in the water, it has a marine biologist. Yeah, and I, and we can't, you know, say like, oh, it's too early after Creature to be influenced. This movie was shot in a week. Yeah. Um, they even have a, like a, an interesting moment where I thought they were like referencing in a roundabout way Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Because um, Steve is like, Julie's an idiot for thinking about this. And his colleague, Dr. Baldwin, is like, well, I I don't know. I was in South America and there were stories of people going missing. And after a really big storm, I found a, an egg that was clearly like a dinosaur, um, but it wasn't fossilized. Yeah, he... he... But the way I, he talks about it, it was like, are you talking about, yeah, talk about Gilman? I definitely, Without, at like, first... Without, like, saying Gilman? When he first said, started telling a story, I was like, wait, is this a crossover? But <laughs> the monster that he describes is more of, like, a pterodactyl kind yeah. of thing. That being said, it is wild that this movie has a scene where to convince a character that the idea of a monster in the ocean is not too unbelievable... I'm going to tell you my story of how I was in like a different sci-fi peep movie where we fought, fought a pterodactyl, you know, off screen that never happened. Like it, yeah. it, it's like the Dr. Yamane thing in Godzilla of like, oh, Godzilla could be real, Yeti or real, uh, but like times a million. Yeah. So you would say that because it's trying to like ride those creatures from the Black Lagoon coattails that like it clearly belongs as part of that tradition. I would say so. Okay. I'm willing to allow it. I think, yes, not a lot happens in this movie, but that's because it was made for, you know, the change that Roger Corman found under the couch. Um, <laughs> so, like, it's less than, like, the movie's not trying to, you know, be horror or something. So, okay, I'm cool for ranking it. Did you have kind of an area in mind? Well, I do, but I'm also kind of not sure about this. This movie is exactly... What it is on the side of the can. You know, it's like that Arrested Development gif of, like, dude opening the bag that says dead dove, and he sees a dead dove, and he's like, well, I don't know what I expected. Right. It's like, this is going to be a dead dove. Sure. You know, it's like, it's a monster movie, and that's what it says on the can, and then you open the can with your can opener, and the can's only, like, a quarter full. Maybe, like, there's not a lot of monster in this monster movie, and (laughs) the monster that is here is very small. Yeah, very small. So because it was like, this is what I am, Mm -hmm. and this is what I have delivered, I'm kind of like respecting it a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that it does well, you know, we've talked about the limitations that it has being a low-budget movie and how you can tell, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, it's also very smart about not really trying to do anything that it can't do. I mean, it can't do the monster, but it kind of has to, so it painted itself into a corner that way. But, you know, it's very smart, then, about not having too much of that monster. Yeah. Um, So, the other neat thing about the monster is its design is very reminiscent of the aliens in It Came From Outer Space. True. Because of the, like, bulbous shape and then the single eye. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I was immediately drawn to... It came from outer space, and Revenge of the Creature, but below it, at 54 and 55. Now, that's quite high. Where I was looking was nearly 100 spots below you. Awesome. (laughs) Um, I respect what this movie is doing, and, you know, I think that it is much more competent than a lot of these movies in some ways. Uh, And by those some ways, I mostly mean... Floyd Crosby, the cinematographer, knows what he's doing. Everybody else are, they're learning, <laughs> you know? Everybody else is learning, but Floyd knows what he's doing. So I started at the bottom of the list and started working my way up and was going, you know, yeah, it's it's better made than a lot of these. And I passed fellow Lippert release Scared to Death, and I was like, oh yeah, for sure, this is better. And I made it up to three cases of murder at 148, which is this low because it's like, extremely tepid for a horror movie. You know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, 
you're going to be afraid because someone was rude to another person. It's British. Yeah. What um, do you expect? (laughs) I expect some fucking... I mean, hammer horror is around the corner, and soon British horror will mean, you know, bright red blood and titties. So, like, (laughs) we'll get there soon enough, though. But I did think Three Cases of Murder, even if it's very tepid horror, is still, like, more of a movie than this is in terms of, like, expertise and craft. And I thought that, you know, if you gave me a choice between the two, which would I rather watch, I would probably choose Three Cases of Murder. But it's definitely better than Night of Terror, which is boring and formulaic and just a big bag of nothing. So I was kind of looking around 148, 149. I definitely agree with this area. Edward's Bride of the Monster is at 122. What do we think of this versus Bride of the Monster since we talked about, like, Roger Corman being the successful version of Ed Wood? I do prefer Bride of the Monster's octopus to this Sure. (laughs) In the battle of the fake octopuses. I feel like the one time we see a real octopus in this movie, it's the same stock footage as in Bride of the Monster. It might be. Um, Bride of the Monster is a movie with a lot more ambition than the people making it can pull off. A lot more ambition than talent. This movie is a movie that is very much... Aiming for the sea. Yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) Not sea as an ocean, but like sea as in grade. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like, this movie is not trying to be anything more than what it is. Like, that I think is Roger Corman's, like, formula of success is like... I'm not going to try to make a $100,000 movie on $15,000. I'm going to make a $15,000 movie on $15,000. I wonder if that's the difference with Ed Wood then, because Ed Wood is trying to make a, a movie that's more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, he's trying to make the movies that he was a fan of as a kid on a very low budget. Whereas Roger Corman is trying to make the most money he can on the least investment. So Corman's a businessman, Edward's an artist. Right. <laughs> that That's not giving... 100% fair to either person, yeah. but... Yeah, but it's, you know, broad strokes here. Can we put this, like, which one is Jungle Woman? So Jungle Woman is the one where it's still Aquanetta, and they're, like, the cabins by the, like, water, and she, like, stalks them through the woods, and then, like stocks them underwater and that kind of stuff. Yes, that's the one with J. Carol Nash. Yeah. Um, right below Jungle Woman is The Neanderthal Man, a movie where... Oof. Um, Lots of great hits down here, Ben. Yeah. A movie where a scientist turns himself into the wolf man so that he can rape a chick. Um, oh, God, right. That's what that one is. I thought... I was thinking of... The one where David Carradine melts a man? No, that's Return of the Ape Man. Right. Uh, Neanderthal Man is the one where the scientist uh, experiments on his yeah. mute Mexican servant. Yeah, that, awful. Just awful. Can we put I, this... I completely blocked it from my mind because of how upsetting <laughs> it is. Do you want to put this above that but below Jungle Woman? Dope. Okay. So entering the list at the... <laughs> Entering the list at the new number 129, so still quite a bit lower than you were looking, but like 20 spots higher than where I was looking. Number 129, Monster from the Ocean Floor, from 1954, directed by Wyatt Ordung. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at underscore screamscene. Screamscene comes out every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and probably a bunch of other places if you subscribe using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can do so by giving us a rating or a review, Um, particularly on Apple Podcasts. Those are the kinds of things that feed the algorithm beast uh, that we are all servant to. Eating up your reviews, spitting out algorithms. Another way you can help the show is just by telling a friend about us. Um, Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. 
Or, if you have the means, you can do what we said at the start of the show and head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a patron of the night. Help us get to 150 by 150. Woo! So, Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, as I mentioned earlier, Roger Corman parlayed the success of this movie into producing The Fast and the Furious at uh, American Releasing Corporation, which was soon to become AIP. That was the first of a three-picture deal he signed with AIP, which was based around the premise of basically continual employment. It was... um, (laughs) As most contracts are. (laughs) Well, the idea was that he would make a movie and use the advance money for that movie to make the next movie so that he didn't have to wait to see if the movie he made was successful before Mm. getting to make the next movie so that he was always working. So basically he's always paying for the next movie on the money from this movie, which was a move he was able to start doing because he got his own money and, and, you know, the money of his friends to make this movie and then sold this movie for money, right, for cash. So he had a three-picture deal with AIP. He did The Fast and the Furious. Then he did a Western called Five Guns West. And then the third film is next week's movie, The Beast with a Million Eyes. Oof, the optometrist bill for that beast. You know, it's, it's making up the fact that this monster only had the one eye. Yeah, there we go. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. See you with our million eyes. Bye. Bye. That was the sound of the eyes wiggling around. I got it.